Hey, everybody. Thanks for downloading The Tully Show. Real quick, a reminder, if you already know, an announcement, if you don't, my new book with Jason Ellis, Still Awesome, The Trials and Tribulations of an Egotistical Maniac, is available for pre-order now. It is the direct sequel to our first book, the New York Times bestselling, I'm Awesome, One Man's Triumphant Quest to Become the Sweetest Dude Ever. Boy, these books have long titles when you say them out loud. Where that first book, I'm Awesome, left off at that exact second where Jason won his first MMA fight is precisely where this new one picks up. Uh, it starts in a familiar place, but goes to places I don't think any of us could have expected six, seven, eight years ago when that first book came out. I'm very proud of the way that it's come out. I got the physical books in earlier this week and uh, it feels good, looks good, solid. It's a book. And I encourage everybody to pre-order it now before its release on December 10th at jasonellisbook.com. Thank you. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, to you live on tape from the penthouse of a partially completed commercial high-rise in glamorous Hollywood adjacent California from the studios of Sirius XM West boasting an obstructed view of one of LA's leading cement factories this is the Tully Show I am your host Mike Tully joining me today the co-host of the Jason Ellis Show right here on Faction Talk and the co-author of the new book, Still Awesome, The Trials and Tribulations of an Egotistical Maniac, also with Jason Ellis. Hello. In case you have not figured out by now, it is me, Solomente, Solomente me, Mike Tully, the host of your show. Welcome. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. Happy early Thanksgiving, if you're listening then, or Thanksgiving, or hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. I personally am looking to uh, forward to a traditionally untraditional Thanksgiving. The family and I have a bit of a death wish, the wife and I. So we've decided to pack our children, including one who is roughly 16 months old, into our car so that we may drive up and down the California coast in what promises to be a driving rain, all so that we can be in San Francisco for. Thanksgiving, San Francisco, one of my favorite cities to visit personally, definitely one of the great American cities. Uh, I've done a little homework on uh, where one might get a Thanksgiving dinner in in San Francisco because I'm a very I'm traditional to a fault when it comes to that. I am a uh, my white trash roots. Well, I, mean, I was not raised white trash, but white recycling might be a little bit more in the ballpark of the way that I was raised. So we have proper, you know, turkey and what have you, but the stuff, the stuffing is going to be stovetop. It's not going to be anything that was ever really bred to begin with. Um, So I'm looking for something in that sort of lane. And I think I may have found it. I don't know if it's wise for me to broadcast my plans for Thanksgiving on uh, international radio, but here we go. I am going to be at a place called the Old Clam House. <laughs> uh, and uh, one one more reason why I love my wife. She definitely, like I was in, as soon as she heard the name, we are going to be in San Francisco's oldest restaurant in what promises to be a, a, a really terrible neighborhood. Not not a quite. The entire city has been gentrified, I'm told, except for a four-block radius around the Old Clam House. So I will be, because my wife, as most people listening to this probably know, is not a native to the uh, to the U.S., she was born in Japan, and she'll eat turkey. She, I don't think she'll touch the stovetop. Can't really fault her for that. Um, so I wanted to give her a non-turkey option as long as we weren't going to be, you know, as long as we're going to be in a restaurant, and we're not making it at home. So I will be enjoying whatever turkey the old clam house will be serving up on Thanksgiving. My wife will be having the old clam. So welcome <coughs> to the show. If you listen to the show, you know that I love to listen to music and I love to talk about music. I'd love to get Mark McGrath, everybody's favorite guest, back in here soon. Um, he's pretty busy these days, as you've probably seen online. So uh, I'm not sure exactly when I'll see him again, hopefully in the next week or two. For now, I thought this is a topic, a musical topic, that I could tackle on my own because um, I love schadenfreude. 
in a good-natured way, it's kind of fun to watch um, people fuck up. Um, and that's why I wanted to take a look today at songs by successful artists, but songs that the successful artists regret making. I don't know for a fact that every single artist I'm going to talk to you about today regrets all of these songs. So I guess I'd have to extend the umbrella of the concept to songs that artists regret making or that they probably should. And I find that these break themselves into a couple of basic categories. I think it's about four basic categories. The first of which is the biggest one, and I'm not going to play you anything from that category. As you probably know, there are lots and lots of um, successful artists who resent their hit songs. And I think there's a couple of subsections of that category of uh, of people. I think something that really does happen, and I've talked to Mark McGrath about this on the show, is something a little weird happens in the band's songwriting process that makes them pump out a little bit of a misfit toy. It's not a coincidence that very often you'll hear bands saying that their big hit song from a given album or maybe just from their whole entire career was a song that they weren't even going to put on the album because it was just a weird, it was a little off. And, and that weirdness is part of what makes it pop and makes it into a big hit song. But I do think that there are some people who genuinely don't totally care for songs, stick them on the album and then live to regret that that is the song for which they are, they are primarily known. And then I think there's just the case, and we can probably all relate to this, where uh, Flock of Seagulls seems to me to be a pretty big example of this, where Flock of Seagulls guy does not like it when you ask him about the hair, and who can blame him, and says he just doesn't enjoy playing that song I ran anymore, because as soon as he walks out on stage, he knows everybody's like, oh, look, it's the Iran guy. Where the fuck is his hair? Okay, well, is he at least going to do that song? And he is bald, and sure, he'll play the song, but that doesn't mean he has to like it. I think when we feel obligated to do things, it robs us of a lot of their joy. So I think we can all kind of all kind of understand that. And then there was um, Adam Duritz of Counting Crows and Banging the Friends fame, who I believe a lot of the stuff I'm going to be talking about the way today, by the way today are things that I believe to be true, that I think I've heard are true, that I've read online. So if any of this is wrong, let me know. I'd love to be corrected at Tully on Twitter, at Tullywood on Instagram, but take all this with a grain of salt. We're just, we're just hanging out. We're just talking here. I believe that I recall <clears throat> that Adam Duritz of Counting Crows was at least a tad bit insufferable in the heyday. Might still be nowadays. I haven't seen him. And that pretty much as soon as he was on single number two, which is like what, like round here, long December, who can who can remember so many hits, that uh, he would no longer, he publicly declared that if you came to see the Counting Crows, didn't do not expect to see him perform Mr. Jones because Mr. Jones was a song about wanting to be famous. And now that Adam Duritz was, he could no longer relate to that. Yeah, speaking of insufferable, the first act from the next category of hit songs that bands regret, um, not only is there hit songs, but songs by established artists that the established artist regrets recording and releasing. This is a guy in a band who I think at times could be uh, accused of insufferability. I didn't know that they specifically had a song, a problem with this song because it's one of their bigger songs, but I have since read a couple of quotes. Michael Stipe of R.E.M. told no less an authority than Space Ghost one time that, remember Space Ghost? That he can do without this classic right here. It's Shiny Happy People. Um, I kind of agree with him. It's not very good. I think I could have saved us both a lot of time. I could have told them when they came up with this. R.E.M., not my favorite band. Indubitably a high-quality act. They've got their moments. Could have told them this is not one of them. Can you hear ever so faintly in the background Mike Mills, the bass player, doing his dip, 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 dip? (laughs) What do you think was the conversation like when... Stipe's like, I'm going to sing a children's song, and we got the chick from B-52's, Kate Pearson, Pearsall, whatever, to class this thing up a little bit, and uh, Peter Buck's just going to 
hide behind his hair and play sweeping beautiful arpeggios like usual, you're going to be very earnestly staring into the camera going dip, 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 dip. Do you think he was on board? I never felt like dip, dip, dip guy had a problem with the dip, dip, dips. Anyway, yeah, REM say that they do not care for uh, shiny, happy people anymore. And as I say, I, I tend to agree with them. Uh, this song was not is not a song that I was familiar with, but based on my brief internet research, I am led to believe that this next track was um, removed from an album. Uh, you don't want to hear it. I think we've done enough. of. Uh, I'm really bad at computers. If you listen to the show long enough, you probably know that I could really use a producer. Anyway, here I am, multitasking as best I can. I'm bringing you, as you can probably already tell, David Bowie. A uh, testament to David Bowie's greatness. I think we can agree most artists would be happy to have had that song. Perhaps even as a single, but if I had to guess, maybe upon re-listening, he decided it was a little too on the nose, a little too accessible, a little too pop for him. So much so that that song, Too Dizzy, was removed, I'm led to believe, from the Never Let Me Down album, which was released in 1987 after the initial pressing. He was really down. On that song, and I mean, must be nice to have a couple of those to spare, huh? Um, that might be uh, the best song that we are going to hear today, because most regrettable songs are regrettable for a reason. It will not surprise anybody to learn that I personally do not have any issue whatsoever with this next one right here. So this was that era in the 80s when a bunch of acts from the 70s and in the 60s, if they wanted to stay in the game, they had to play the 80s game and make this faceless garbage corporate rock. God, Robin Zander, such a good singer. So this is a uh, cheap trick, and this is the flame off that same album with uh, with "Don't Be Cruel," because they were in a bit of a uh, career dip, and this is what brought them back. I mean, this is as big as they ever were again, right? Lovely note here. Again, back to the Bowie thing, how nice it must be to be so talented and so successful that you can turn up your nose at, you know, at least mediocre material. Two fun facts about The Flame by Cheap Trick, which came out in uh, 87, 88. Um, Upon hearing the demo of the song, guitarist and band leader Rick Nielsen disliked it so much that he took the cassette out of the tape player and ground it beneath his boot and presumably sent it back to the record label to let him know, this is what Cheap Trick thinks about this, even though you know they were going to be recording it and <laughs> making a video for it within six months. Also, um, this is a really fun fact for me. Bunny Carlos, Cheap Trick's drummer, said that... Oh, no, 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 this is Tom Peterson, the bass player, said that the VP of Epic Records said, we have two songs. And they are both going to be number one. One's for you and one's for Chicago. You pick. And the songs that were presented to them were The Flame and Look Away. Remember? When I called you up morning, told me about your new love, you found. That song um, was apparently Cheap Tricks for the taking. I think they made the right call. They picked The Flame once the cassette was reassembled out of the particles beneath Rick Nielsen's boot. and middling pop history was made because I think that song probably did go to number one. Okay, so those are the songs that artists regret recording 
because they think that they are bad. And now we're going to move on to a uh, a slightly spicier category, which is the songs that bands regret recording because they they probably are pretty bad. Um, it will once again surprise no one to learn that I kind of really like some of the stuff that the artists themselves could do without. See if you can guess who this is by. It's not Stacy Q. I'll just never figure it out because there's all this goth and goth pop and new wave romantic what have you from the era the second tier stuff that you haven't heard that people are like oh you've never heard of you know the the zinc mind warp function and then you listen you're like oh I guess blah, blah, blah. and then you hear this and you're like no okay now this I can get behind only to find out that that is the original sound of ministry Stigmata. Jesus built my hot rod. Currently, I think, doing like a 30th anniversary farewell something or other tour. They said that the... Come on, guys. Let's pretend we're dead robots and smear a bunch of lipsticks on our cheeks and call it rouge. Anyway, uh, Al Jorgensen said that the record label forced them to make an album that sounded like shit, and uh, I think he accidentally made an album that sounded like pretty good, but uh, Ministry has completely disavowed, disowned any uh, ownership or association with that song, Effigy, which I will now be listening to from here on out. This next song is, uh, it's sad. It's kind of sad. The 80s kind of touched on it with Cheap Trick, but there was that thing of where I guess it was the MTVization and corporatization of music kind of working in tandem of where if career artists wanted to hang around, it definitely helped that they, they had the name and they had the image. And that was something that the soulless corporate music industry hucksters could work with, but you needed to work with those soulless hucksters too and either make some Really vanilla shit that could have been recorded by anybody. I mean, literally, think about what Cheap Trick were when they started, and think about what Chicago were when they started, and then could they have imagined that 10, 15 years later, some guy's going to be saying, flip a coin, you guys each pick one of these, and it'll be number one for each of you? It's a very, very weird time. It makes you wonder almost why they needed Chicago or Cheap Trick anyway. They just needed some dudes with shoulder pads and, you know, uh, mullets to perform it for the music video. But anyway, there were, you know, people who were trying to hang on and remain relevant. In some cases, it was about relevance. In some in some cases, people trying to hang on in the 80s or at any time is because maybe they didn't make as much money as you think that they did in the heyday. And maybe they needed to keep making music to, you know, keep paying rent, keep paying child support, keep paying their dealer. I don't know what the reason was that Johnny Cash recorded this next song that I am uh, going to play for you here. Um, I do know that, I, I don't know if he ever publicly expressed that that he, I'm going to start playing it because it's a story song. It's very much in the style of many of the classic uh, Johnny Cash barn burners. I do know that at a certain point, another big country guy, don't quote me on this, I want to say Merle Haggard was like, bruh, you are embarrassing yourself. This song's called The Chicken in Black, and I was surprised to learn that this exists. For two long years, my head hurt bad, so the doctor checked me and he shook his head. He said, I'm sorry to tell you, but your body's outlived your brain. 
Okay, got it. He said, I know this doctor in New York, son, and he'll fix you right up with a brand new one. So the head doctor met me when I stepped down off of the train. Okay, so he's going to tell a little story here, and uh, Johnny Cash is doing some real prime-level 1980s music video, hammy acting, you know, uh, Rock and Rodney, uh, Rap and Rodney, and No Respect music video, that brand of acting. You know what I'm talking about. 80s music video shit. Here he is. Now he's wearing a cape and he's holding a guitar and he's robbing a bank at Guitar Point and everybody's throwing their dollars into his guitar case. So this is a story song that I think has a couple of different... There's a couple of bad ideas for a song that all kind of got folded into one here. Oh, Johnny Cash is so evil. The cape-wearing man, he just stole somebody's gum and started chewing it. Okay, so... As you probably heard in the beginning, Johnny Cash in this song, his body has outlived his brain. So they have given him a brain from, of course, the only available brain is from some um, some uh, criminal. So their brains are fine. So now Johnny Cash just robbed a bank and now he just goes and performs a concert and uh, he robs everyone in the concert, his entire audience. So he has all their money, but now he has been arrested. So he calls the doctor back and he said, this whole brain transplant thing that we've done is not working out for me. I need you to undo it. And this is the reason why the song is called The Chicken in Black. This is the point at which the doctor reveals he cannot do this because he has tricked Johnny Black, uh, uh, Johnny Cash. You see... Johnny Cash's brain was just fine all along, so much so that they have presumably crammed it down very small because they have transplanted it into the head of a chicken. And that chicken has now stolen Johnny Cash's career. And I th- I'm not sure what happens. Okay, well, let's, let's pick back up here. A lady said, why, you're Johnny Cash. I said, no, ma'am. I'm the Manhattan Flash, and I am the best bank robber in New York. Well, I don't pay any income tax. You don't pay tax on money you steal. You ought to catch that Johnny Chicken show. Chicken in black. Oh, Johnny. You even gave it your trademark low hum to dignify that piece of crap. Chicken and Black, yeah, so Merle Haggard is like, Johnny, you gotta stop. And then I think there were about 10 more lean years, and then Rick Rubin met Johnny Cash and famously sat across from him and said, play every song by Nine Inch Nails and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and uh, I will release 25 albums of them, and uh, we'll make you a star all over again. And then Joaquin Phoenix played him in a movie, and the end. So, uh, you know? Into every life must one or two little chicken and blacks fall, right? I'm sure many people listening to this are familiar with this project that this band regrets. I didn't know anything about it other than that it existed until I started doing a little homework for this. Bad Religion, our uh, band everybody loves, punk band, and uh, their second album is something that they are, I think at least a couple of them are comfortable joking about. Maybe all of them are, I don't know. They seem pretty serious, but I don't think anybody feels the need to uh, keep up any pretense where this album is is concerned. So I'm just going to let this play a little bit. The story, according to guitar player Brett Gerwitz, is that in typical punk rock fashion, they made an album. Fuck yeah. That is not sped up Genesis. Although it's actually pretty decent sped up Genesis. This is Bad Religion. So anyway, Brett Gerwitz says that after they made their first album, they were kind of like, we're a punk rock band. We're done. This is, you know, we're following the Sex Pistols models. You make an album and then half of us die and that's the end of it, right? And their label was like, no, we're like a business and you guys keep doing these things. So I guess that kind of explains why they decided to buy a synthesizer 
and learn how to play a whole bunch of parts that I will once again point out sound a whole hell of a lot like they were conceived of by Tony Banks of Genesis fame. And Bad Religion made a prog rock album. Everybody's going around touring and doing, you know, the 35th anniversary of this album, top to bottom. Don't know if Bad Religion are taken. What is this album called again? It's got space on the cover. I mean, you can probably tell by listening to it. Into the Unknown is the name of this album. I'm going to play another one. This is Billy Gnosis. What the... This is uh, Werewolves of London? Am I am I the only one getting that? Kid Rocket have a go at this? Uh, Bad Religion. Regret making the Into the Unknown album. And uh, who can blame him? And then, of course, we have this classic. God, you got to look up the cover of this. I'm going to let this play out because, okay, I want to first, okay, it's Pantera. Everybody knows, right, that Pantera made not just like one album, like three or or four before Phil came along that were of uh, decidedly pop metalier ilk. Here's the thing, though, and this is going to be more of a thing more and more as time goes on. I think... I forget. Vinny and Dimebag were... Is, is Vinny the older one? One of them was 16, and one of them was 19. And um, if I were a successful musician, and the music that I made when I was 16 was available on the internet, it would be way fucking more embarrassing than than this. But the fact remains, this is Pantera. I think we're going to have some fake crowd noise. Not live, folks. Don't be fooled. Kicking in to opening track of Metal Magic, Ride My Rocket. Or Detroit Rock City, whatever you want. Fuck yeah. No, I take it back. I really like this too. Okay, come on. You go in a dive bar and Ride My Rocket is cranking out the shitty wall-mounted speakers, the Kobe speakers. Are you turning around and leaving? I'm a 42-year-old man. If anything's going to make me drink shots, it's going to be a bar playing Ride My Rocket. Now, this song is... uh, is truly regrettable and obviously the further back you go the more embarrassing things are because times change and styles change and politically correctness changes and stuff so it's a little bit surprising that this is i'm almost positive this is the no this is the second newest of the songs that i have to share with you today on the tully show i do not follow new country i make no apology for that so i'm gonna have to take the internet's word for it that this was tim mcgraw's breakthrough hit little known fact tim mcgraw indian outlaw you can find him in his wigwam oh dude he's filming the music video at the fucking coyote that's on. It's around the corner from where I am right now. That's in Los Angeles. That's on Melrose. Tim McGraw, a legitimate down south, good old American boy, slash Indian outlaw, slash Angelino. And I think this music video is filmed on stage at a strip club. And 
I've only been to like two strip clubs in LA, and I think I've been to this one. I think I performed on stage at this one, a la Tim McGraw. So anyway, yeah, I don't. Uh, I mean, country has still does not have a whole lot of shame in its game, but I don't know that anybody from that uh, that genre of music is going to be declaring themselves an Indian outlaw while wearing a cowboy hat and uh, looks like a fake mustache. Tim McGraw before his um celebrity uh fragrance days still find tim mcgraw as a, at a, a i'm a raw shopper when they're buying discount socks tim mcgraw definitely among the uh hardy last survivors of the celebrity fragrance game and that brings us on uh, today's subject of uh songs that bands regret recording to uh songs with questionable lyrics and i could go on about this forever there's Obviously, there was for a long time a time honored tradition of songs about um underage partners. I mean, there's really no other way to put it either the your girlfriend's underage or boy underage lady, I wish you were my girlfriend or something like that yeah, it, it's the rare hair metal band that did not record a song glamorizing glorifying um teen girls. Um, but, uh, I, I had to narrow this down. Well, first there is, there is this, which, um, Aaliyah is, you know, sadly not here to regret anything. And if anything, she had to be, uh, you know, a victim in this clearly. I don't know. You guys probably know this, right? Okay, first of all, Aaliyah is so goddamn talented. It's such a fucking shame because I can recall, like, I, I was, you know, total hair metal guy going into being, like, Brit pop dude when they were launching Aaliyah. So I, I can recall seeing those, um, you know, the, the billboards that they just throw up on, like, construction sites and stuff like that for Aaliyah. I specifically remember seeing them all over New York, even though she's, I don't know where she's from, but she's, uh, you know, was launched by R. Kelly. Spoiler alert, that's where we're, we're going with this, if you don't already know that. So out of Chicago. But I remember seeing stuff all over, and it was Aaliyah, AJ, nothing but a number. And I'm like, oh, okay, we've seen this before. Some other, you know, pop ingenue is, is out here, and she sucks, and she's manufactured drivel and 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 she's going to talk about how she's an independent woman even though she's you know nine years old and so i never listened to it and it was uh only you know i had my last job i worked in in pop radio and so like it or not i ended up hearing all of the big pop hits of the early 2000s and i did not care for most of them but i really liked what Aaliyah was doing when she tragically passed away there's a song that came out after she died um called uh miss you it's if you don't know it it's just it's it's fucking beautiful she's a real she's a real talent and she had a real singular thing and you go back and listen to this and it's crazy because here we'll listen to a little bit of it So it's cool because her thing, you know, R&B has always been plagued with people over singing over the top. And who could blame a kid for showing up and just saying, I can do that, too? You know, Aaliyah was from Star Search or something like that. She started off in that kind of factory. I think she had family in the business. And from the second she showed up, it was just like cool and and slow and low. And if you listen to that song in um, in the abstract it's fucking cool that a teenager, and she's really young, she's like 15, shows up and she's like, AJ, nothing but a number, and watch, I'm going to do this like very, very uh, mature, good R&B song, except for the fact, spoiler alert, as everybody probably knows, that she made this album in conjunction with R. Kelly. He was the producer. He was the mentor. They spent a lot of time together, a lot of times one-on-one into the night, working on this and you know although she disputed it i don't know that there is any disputing there's a marriage certificate that you can go find on the internet where uh she somebody lied about Aaliyah's age and she was married to r kelly when she was a a teenager 
in that awful rock and roll tradition of, um, you know, Ted Nugent, Jerry Lee Lewis, Prince guilty of, of the same thing. And I think it never became as big of a thing, A, because even when she died, the culture wasn't on that stuff nearly to the extent that they are now. And B, because I have to guess it didn't benefit Aaliyah to say, yeah, this is what happened and it's fucked up. And, you know, I was a child and I was taken advantage of. I think that she came to the conclusion that the less I fuel this fire, the the smaller this fire will be. And ultimately, the less I'll have to deal with it. So she just always said, no, people got it wrong. People misunderstood. And so now that everything is finally seemingly blowing up in R. Kelly's face we are all left collectively as a culture to look back at the fact that should we have known about this well his protege was releasing songs called age ain't nothing but a number when she was 15 years old so that is a uh i don't know if r kelly regrets that but that is a regrettable song that exists shame on uh on all of us for just you know sending that one on the chart it's got a beat and i can dance to it and end of story um as i mentioned this is a uh as everybody knows a very time-honored tradition in uh, in pop music. Let's start with one of the classics. Does Ringo still perform this? Probably, right? Ew! Again, it's not as if Ringo Starr recorded the song and was banished to Cambodia with Gary Glitter upon completing it. Like, do you get a call from a George Harrison under the radar like, Ringo, baby, are we sure about this? Yeah, gross. Uh, that is a song that, you know, I should have looked that up. When you get to that level, it's such a big deal if you get in an interview with Ringo Starr, right? Is anybody taking their precious minutes with Mr. Human Peace Sign to go, dude, really? That song? Would you like to just take a minute to say it was a different time? If I had to do all over again, I wouldn't have done that. <clears throat> I doubt that's happened. Okay, this next one fucking blew me away i had no idea that this song existed i I had the feeling when i was watching the music video because this song was a single and an official music video that i was watching a deep fake as we all know we are going to very shortly be living in a um in a world in a reality in a present where you can see video of Person X doing Y, and Person X will be able to plausibly say, I never did that. That is not me. That is a faked video. This is already going on. I've already seen some really shitty, uh, you know how there used to be political scandals in other parts of the world, like Italy or, you know, Asia or what have you, or something where somebody would just be clearly guilty of something and they would make some preposterous uh, defense that that wasn't me. That was a body double, you know, the R Kelly defense as it were. Um, And we'd all go, Oh my God, that is ridiculous. What a banana Republic they're running over there. Uh, Man, what a joke. I'm so glad I don't live in a country where anything like that could ever happen. Do you recall? I remember thinking that like not that long ago. And yet we live in a world where <clears throat> people I, I think have already they people already dip their toe in the when they are completely caught red handed audio video with, well, uh, I heard that might be a fake. And if and if people will start to buy it, then they'll you know, the the, the trial balloon, then they'll lean into that one a little bit more. But uh, it's really not going to be that long until that, it, you know, video evidence won't mean anything and then uh, i mean that's a whole separate conversation but if audio evidence doesn't mean anything and video evidence doesn't mean anything and you can uh disavow any eyewitness evidence well then nobody can prove that anybody did anything and that's a scary whirlpool of chaos into which the world might very well be falling but that's a subject for another day anyway i bring all of that up because when i saw the music video for this song, I thought initially, 
that I was looking at a deep fake because I truly did not believe that one Katy Perry as recently as 2007 had a single called You're So Gay. Did everybody know this but me? Oh, is that about, is this about Pete Wentz? Oh my goodness, they just had a Pete Wentz stand-in, and I think they called him Pete Wirtz. Oh my goodness, I think I might know what Pete Wentz's uh, uh, tattoos look like, and I think there's a Ken doll in this that that looks like it has Pete Wentz's uh, tattoos. Man, I would have thought that, because there's a, you know, Shit happened a long time ago, and uh, you know, and and if you play your cards right, you don't get ruined by this regrettable thing that you did 10, 15, 20 years ago. I would have thought that a contemporary pop star who you know came of age in the contemporary, um, I'm going to use the word woke just because we all know we're talking about in the woke world, then this would be an unforgivable sin because I know Katy Perry has transitioned out of like I'm a human lollipop. Into being like, um, you know, I do yoga and, um, you know, and girl power kind of person. But it was not that long ago that she, you know, I kissed a girl and stuff like that. And I, I do. Was there ever a reckoning for people going? And I know that she's apologized for this, but was there ever a reckoning where people said, hey, and, and don't get me wrong. I don't actually believe that there ought to be one. You know, part of my, I have an issue with, like, like even Ringo. I think Ringo should come out on the record and say, it's not okay to date 16-year-olds with pigtails. I believe he should say that. But I don't think that he actually should be ruined for having recorded that song. Reason being, it was a massive fucking hit song. The entire world was like, play it again, Ringo. Do that one about the teenager. It's it's it wasn't just his error it was the world's error and we all look at it now and go ew gross what the fuck were we boy what were we what were we thinking let's let's be better now and um you know again everybody was uh not asking the right questions about why Aaliyah was performing making songs with R Kelly and um you know uh, singing a song called Age Ain't Nothing But a Number and when Katy Perry recorded a song called You're So Gay that was the thing that People said this. I mean, let's face it. That's still a thing that plenty of people say. People don't say it, um, you know, maybe on the coasts or on the Internet or certainly not if you're in public life because you'd be ruined for that. But to think that the, um, you know, that the uh, that the world wakes up one day and simultaneously across the board gets the hint. All right. We don't do that anymore is just uh, it's wishful thinking. There's people who if you use certain slang words, you're just going to keep using them until the day you die. Even if you realize that you're not supposed to say them too loud and in, you know, the wrong um, in the wrong company. So, you know, when she did a song called You're So Gay, it's got like 60 million views on YouTube. Clearly, some people were on board with that. If there was if anybody had an issue with her saying that at the time, they clearly got shouted down by the um, the Katieites. Does she have do her fans have does their their tribe known by anything in particular? Um, Remarkable that that was. Not that big of a deal at the time, but it just goes to show things change very quickly and these days very definitively. Our next song is something that I don't, it's about something that I don't think was ever okay. <clears throat> and I had heard of, uh, you know, Elvis Presley had his movie career and I guess there was maybe one or two of them that were kind of good and sort of enjoyable. And then for, I'm not really clear why Elvis Presley was completely betrothed and under the spell of that Colonel Tom Parker guy and was could like even if he owed like 80 percent of his money to Colonel Tom Parker, which I don't think is the the case because Graceland's really big and I'm not familiar with, you know, Colonel Tom Parker land being some other estate that's five times the size of it. so. I don't know why Elvis had no choice but to do 
everything this man did, even though he was clearly financially independent of Colonel Tom Parker. But as as much as I know about Elvis, which is not a whole lot, the story goes, Colonel Tom Parker said, make a movie. And Elvis said, I don't want to. And Colonel Tom Parker's like, do it. And then he did it. And then they did it like 15 more times. And instead of Elvis, you know, transitioning with the pop world into making new and interesting forms of music, just made kitschier crap. And this movie is one of the ones in that line. I don't know if it's closer to the front or the back, but I think I had some vague sense that Elvis had made an a movie called Kissin' Cousins, but I don't think that I realized that it was actually about <laughs> about kissing cousins. But tell me more about this gal. She's a distant cousin. Oh, she's not too distant with me. Oh, Elvis, no. We kiss all night. I sleep is her tight. But we're kissing cousin. That's what makes it alright. Wait. That's what makes it alright? So it would not be alright if she were not a blood relation, Elvis? This is an ongoing thing. You didn't just get drunk at a family reunion and get thing, let things get out of hand on White Claws before you realize that, uh-oh, so-and-so isn't just a friend of a friend. You know what's weird, too, is that there's... So this is a musical, so everybody's dancing, but they have this weird kind of zombie dance that everyone's doing behind him. It actually looks a little bit like Thriller. It's almost as if this chorus of people are like, yeah, I guess that's okay what you're singing about, you creep. And then, meanwhile, there's one lady who is uh, up on, like, a porch of some sort. It does seem to be a rustic country sort of scene. You know, I hate to live up to stereotypes, but this is Kissing Cousins. And I, this, I'm guessing this is the titular cousin. She's the one who's really getting down to this song because she's pretty excited about making out with her, her cousin again as soon as he's done celebrating their um, uh, criminal and unnatural relationship in song. And I think she's flanked by the law. I haven't seen her in a little while, but I think that... Oh wait, now there's two couples. Are they also cousins? Or are all four of them cousins? It's two Elvises. Wait a second. He's he's kissing two different women. There's two Elvises split in half. One of them is a blonde and one of them is a brunette. Oh my god, guys, it's not kissing cousin. It is kissing cousins. Is, is that what the movie is? Is Elvis just making just going around Tennessee making out with third cousins? Um yeah, that's uh I'm going to go ahead and call that a regrettable song. But uh, the next to most regrettable song that uh, I have, it, it, this is actually what gave me the whole idea for this show. Remember a while back when I was just reading a Circus magazine, Circus, the old rock magazine from uh, you know the 70s and 80s? Man, have I gotten a lot of mileage out of that one uh, issue, that magazine. I should probably buy another one. It gave me like another month of this show. But anyway, there was just this casual reference to the band Crocus in a song that they had that I'm going to play for you, and then you won't really be able to make out the lyrics because it's rock and roll and because they are Swedish. But uh, spoiler alert, this song is called Smelly Nelly. And there was a casual mention in Circus about how the singer regretted recording the song. And that got me thinking about regrettable songs. You see? So check this out a little bit. He's going to jump the octave now. Okay. Uh, we got a chorus here. Oh, boy. That was the best pre-chorus that Crocus could think of. Oh my god, they're just gonna go on like this. Okay, let me let me tell you about the lyrics to Smelly Nelly here. There we go. 
<laughs> I mean, this is... Maybe Spinal Tap was easier to make than we realized at the time because it's hard to parody reality when reality is this. Here's some choice lyrics from Smelly Nelly by the band Crocus. This is like off of the fourth album too. So the whole like we are just kids getting started thing, that excuse is not in play. You know Crazy Nelly, she's cross-eyed and dumb. She's dirty and she's smelly, but she's got a lovely bum. Her hair is bloody grotty. Her breath stinks like the pest. Her skin is dry and spotty, but, yep, her ass is just the best. She's getting easy money and welfare from the state. Smelly Nelly, be mine. So, lyrically, what we're getting at here is that uh, this is the most disgusting woman uh, known to man, and she has really outrageous personal hygiene issues, and she's very poor, but she's got a pretty good butt, so this guy's dating her. Verse 2. Her body's fat and flabby. Her rotten teeth just stink. Her clothes are torn and shabby, but her lips are nice and pink. Her knickers are encrusted with shit and bugs and lice. Her face is bruised and busted, but her ass is paradise. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Break it down. Crocus. Smelly Nelly. Coming soon to a hockey rink near you. So this pretty much wraps up uh, this uh, this episode of Regrettable Songs. The most regrettable song that I can think of by a major artist is, without a doubt, One in a Million by Guns N' Roses. That's the one that's so bad that I'm not even going to get into why it is so bad. Um, I think probably everybody listening to this knows why. Don't bother looking it up if, um, if you don't know why. But where the fuck did that come from to have a a racist song when your star iconic lead guitar player is is half black they don't do that anymore right i mean they're doing the reunion can you what would happen if they're like okay guys we're gonna take it back to gnr and then fucking the opening chords of one in a million never happen hey everybody thanks for listening if you're still listening don't forget to check out the new book with jason ellis still awesome trials and tribulations of an egotistical maniac available for pre-order now jasonellis.com jasonellisbook.com hopefully back with a guest next week on the telly show